<laughs> the generator is back on. Well, this is just, um, it'll be part of the but soundtrack. But that's part, part, of the, part of the experience here in Irving. And we are on the seventh floor balcony of an upscale uh, apartment building in Parkview, which is like kind of a gated community yes. type uh, situation. So they have enough money to, to ensure that they that when the city power goes off, they never have to lose power. Yes, exactly. So that's what they do. Um, also, it's uh, some sort of uh, profit for them, like a continuous profit going on. Yeah. They make use of uh, the fact that the uh, electricity from government is not able to provide 24-hour electricity to people. So they make money by charging more. So they're not highly invested in the actual infrastructure of the city getting better. <laughs> they want it. No, just no, unfortunately, it's just a temporary solution, but uh, they're making the best out of it. <laughs> Do you not get overwhelmed when you, you know, see a city that, that grows so organically and so just, you know, any way it can? Yes. And you're trying to, you know, sort of say like, hey, this is, this is a, a proper way to do this or... Uh, let's be organized in our thinking that the government has to be able to have the confidence to think 50 years down the road instead of like, you know, what, yes, what's going to be built five years down. Yeah, more of a long-term vision um, for how the city should look like in 50 years from now and how it's going to meet the people uh, needs in 50 years from now. And um, that's unfortunately not the way of thinking. It's a way of thinking because of all the conflicts this region was going through. People are used to flooding away every now and then. Fair enough. Uh, I mean, it is sort of ironic for a place that is just about one of the oldest cities on earth. I mean, you know, that dates back to ancient Samaria. Yes. That yes. there's a lack of long-term thinking. I think the Samarians were long-term planners. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we <laughs> they lasted for them. long. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Take a, take a page from Sumerian uh, design and city planning. Just over the horizon from the balcony where we were standing is where ISIS's advance stalled out in 2014. ISIS, with their pickup trucks and shitty laws and black battle flags, had come less than 30 miles from the capital of Kurdistan. In that environment, one of jihadism and civil war and occasional genocide, it's so tempting to think short-term. It's contagious. It makes politicians and lenders and small business owners think about how to make the most money right now, to distrust the future, to be wary of building anything of long-term value. You can see the results of that mindset in the half-finished towers of abandoned subdivisions, bleached like whale bones on the outskirts of the city. And yet, the Kurds are still here, they will be here, they will be living in the capital they've built for themselves for decades and centuries to come. Might as well bet long on your own region and start thinking big thoughts about how to make this the capital it should be. That's where Basima Abdul Rahman comes in, a civil and structural engineer with a master's from Auburn University. She has made green city planning and sustainable architecture her cause here in Kurdistan. It's something you see a lot of in the United States, even more in Europe, but in this part of the world, her push for building a longer-lasting, more well-planned capital is a sign of perhaps unreasonable optimism, something that is valuable pre-COVID when we had recorded this conversation 
and even more so today. I'm Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. So you wanted to drink tea, but why? Because uh, this is our drink. That's what we have in the morning, after lunch, after dinner, going out with friends. We usually get tea, Iraqi tea. Iraqi tea. And the tea houses, you know, the places that are kind of lining the streets with wood burning uh, stoves. It's like you get it's it's like almost ritualistic i guess yes um and i also one of the things that has amazed me and i find just very charming like like probably a better life style is there's a lot of like there's a lot of patiently just kind of sitting you know sitting next to somebody at the park and just talking i yeah. mean I, you know i say that like like it's revelation but that just doesn't really happen in a city this size anyway in the States. The culture here is um, playing a big role when it comes to uh, sitting next to random people and started talking. People are curious about each other. They're usually nice. Uh, they like to be nice to others. Uh, they don't like to sit alone and just you know, look into the distance and try to reflect like what we what what we do as millennials. We try um, to stay um, isolated from others, but I think um, in general uh, people are kind and uh, they're very uh, social, and that's what makes them uh, like talking to random people sitting next to them. Yeah, this is what I've also heard why. Uh, Kurdish people in the United States have a bit of culture shock too of just like you know losing that ability to make connections losing the interest in just chatting and hanging out in the plaza <laughs> it's not a big feature of you you know oh. Amer- American life all right well so tell me tell me your name and and uh, let's start with with your company and and what it does and how you got there so uh, my name is Basim Abdurrahman. I'm a Baghdad-born Kurd, <laughs> and uh, I lived in Baghdad until 2006. We moved to Kurdistan uh, afterwards because of the um, civil uh, unrest and, and uh, sectoral conflict that was happening there. I have an engineering background. I uh, have. Uh, Bachelor in Civil Engineering and um, Master's in Structural Engineering. I worked with the government for some time. I didn't like it. That's why I applied for Master's. I had no plan. I just wanted something different. When I was doing my Master's, I was working a lot in doing building structural design, and I didn't like it. Um, and then uh, when I came back to Iraq around uh, January 2015, uh, it was um, it was the peak time when um, um, when ISIS uh, came in and all the military uh, operations happening and all the all the disruption happening across the country and 
it was a bit different and there were there were not much companies uh, working not much development happening even here in Kurdistan so um, I just joined the United Nations for some time the type of uh, interventions they do is nice still I didn't like it <laughs> um, but uh, as an environmentalist I love environment I um, I care so much about uh, nature about other creatures and I feel responsible I was introduced to the concept of green building at some point I was interested to learn more about it so I went by my own twice to the states to study more about it I got accredited in this uh, area this was at Ar- Auburn um, so I did my master's in structural engineering in Auburn I spent uh-huh. there um, a little bit over than two years and that's when I came back and joined uh, the United Nations Got here. It. But then while I'm with the United Nations, I was taking some time off to go back to the States to study uh, a little bit more about um, green building. So uh, I went to conferences, I um, took some trainings, and then I took two exams, one in 2016, one in 2017, to become lead professional. And when I came back in July 2017, I thought to myself, there are no green building companies here. There's no way I'm leaving the country because that's the main reason I came back from the States um, after doing my master's there is that I wanted to help build back the country because of all the destruction was happening from terrorist groups. So, uh, I thought to myself, why not start it myself? So I have the background, I have the expertise, I have the passion for it. And that's how I started KESK. It means green in Kurdish. It means green. And you're, when you say the country and the, what you want to rebuild and, and the fact that there's no LEED certification, that's all, of, that's all about Kurdistan. Or is there no kind of green building movement in all of Iraq? There are no green building movements or specialized companies or or any projects uh, of this type happening anywhere in Iraq. So we are technically the first. So you just have to do it yourself. Yes, we we are going to pave the road, <laughs> but hopefully we will we will not be by ourselves. You won't be alone <laughs> on this long journey. Um, well, let me let me start with that one part about coming back from the United States because you know I think that's a it's a big theme here. It's a big problem, is that all the good ones leave, <laughs> right? Yes. I mean, what makes you different, or or are there a number of people who have made the kind of commitment that you've made? Um, I know a number of uh, of other scholars who went to the states and came back. Um, but yeah, the majority usually stays because people want to have a good life and uh, um, they like living in the States and um, helps them advance uh, personally and professionally. And in my case, it was something more, more like a personal um, decision. It happened on the night when ISIS took over some of the main big cities in Iraq. I remember that night, I, um, I was following up with my family 
and they were worried. ISIS was very close, 10 kilometers away from Erbil city. And um, I got really worried and I felt sad and ashamed, you know, because I did not want to be associated with this, with all this mess. Then I had this, I don't know what, what to call it, this moment of clarity, I guess. Yeah. That sounds, um, well, let's hear what it was and then we, when can, you we hit, can name it. Yeah, when you hit the um, rock bottom and then the, the only way is to go up again. And that's when I felt, you know what, maybe I can help somehow. I didn't know what I'm going to do then. I yeah. just thought I should go back. I, I should do something good. I was more thinking towards things related to how can we promote this region as uh, this very old historical region that was rich with all the knowledge, all the history, all the good things. And so the rest of the world will not only think of us based on uh, the last thir uh, three decades of this region's um, life. And uh, that's what I wanted to promote. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. So you were, you were in the States when ISIS took over, is yes. it? And that's when you were talking to your family yes. that was here in Abdeel. Yes. And I imagine also, I mean, Kurdistan was a refuge for you and your family already once, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, um, that can be a powerful thing to realize that, you know, you're not always safe everywhere else, and here's a place where Kurds can actually live. Yes. Um, so in the in the motto environmentalists, like don't destroy, you know, <laughs> your your bit of land, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. I I mean, one of the reasons why I was excited to talk to you is because I think a number of the people that I'm talking to here are connected directly to the conflicts in one way or the other, and mm -hmm. and uh, and that's important, and it's. It's obviously a huge part of what's been happening here. It's a huge part of everybody's lives. But the ability to kind of pick your head up and look around and think of the bigger picture, even in a, an era of crisis, I think is also really fascinating and takes a special mentality, I think. Yes. Um, so when everybody here is concerned about, you know, building for security and making sure that they, um, you know, that they're you know, buildings won't be bombed and mm -hmm. so on, you know, that, that for you to say, well, wait a second, like peace will be here one day and then we'll have to reckon with what we've built exactly. <laughs> and, and the lives that we're leading in it. Um, I think it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, ability to kind of look deeper into the future. Is, is it hard to make that argument? It's about the perception of the public. It's not easy, it takes time, um, but it has to happen because, like you said, peace is, is coming, peace uh, is going to be the norm one day. And uh, we are, I feel, on the brink of this new era, 
and um, hopefully uh, uh, the next uh, years are just going to be about uh, rebuilding and developing and advancing in all different sectors. And when we think when we think in a more futuristic way, when we think long term, we are embracing this uh, this belief that we are going to be living in peace, right? And so you when, can you can yeah. kind of manifest it and exactly. make it make it happen. So uh, mm. this is the kind of uh, way of thinking we want to uh, promote. Um, let's not just think of how things are going to be in the next five to ten years. We need to think further. And any investment has to be done, whether by public or private uh, sector, uh, should be around this way of thinking. A futuristic, uh, forward thinking uh, kind of investment and to make sure that uh, current and future generations are going to benefit from every single penny we are putting into uh, developing this region. How do you make that case? How do you change minds? When I start talking about environment, climate change, I don't see much response or uh, people tend to think uh, more towards what's in it for us. So I have to sell it more in terms of financials, saying if you put this amount of money to build this type of uh, structure or infrastructure, this is going to come back as a profit. Uh, and this amount of money depends on how much you put into it. And um, yeah, basically, we uh, I have to sell it in terms of money. You make it an economic argument. Yes. Is there one to make? Um, it's not just altruistic. There, there can be a way that they profit from investing in this kind of building. Exactly, because um, when you are investing in sustainable uh, building, you save money in terms of energy and water use. And we have a lot of difficulties. We were just talking outside about the uh, shortage of electricity we have here. So we need less consumption of that. And uh, the population is growing and the more it's growing, you have to meet the demand. And at some points you will end up not able to meet the demand uh, with the available resources and that's why you have to invest into sustainable uh, development um, because that is going to address these issues that we're going to have um, in the future and let's not be just uh, very short term in our way of thinking and think of ourselves and our kids because uh, we're talking about um, a lifelong of, of uh, other generations coming what they're going to think of us when they see how badly we uh, functioned when it comes to development. And there's something I always say, we have this very long history and experience in building. We have Zokrat, we have um, the uh, Citadel, uh, we have many examples that shows that human were doing amazing when it comes to building. Yeah, I mean, this is, I'm, what they say about the citadel is it's like the oldest continuously inhabited structure on earth exactly um i mean um, this this town dates back to sumerians and before so it's it's a very 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 long time so we need to prove that we have evolved 
as human. Yeah, fair. And uh, that's we ha- it has to be reflected somehow in the way we build. That is also uh, something to think of, not to just go traditionally and you know um, think of in uh, uh, basic and and. In a very simple way of thinking, we need to go more deep. Yeah. And, you know, I had been talking to someone who grew up in Ankawa, where, where you live and where I'm staying, which is the, uh, I guess, traditionally had been a Christian village on the outskirts of Erbil. Um, but there was an old village that just got totally torn down and they just threw up a bunch of concrete buildings um, in its place. And, and that was a generation ago or more. But, you know, there was a, there was a real sense of loss. I guess among the people who had like, um, who had grown up in a, a, a village that was a certain way, and then it kind of turned into some somewhat of an urban sprawl. But like you said, you're anticipating when this fighting finally stops, and it's it's well on its way, you know, inshallah, to stopping. Yeah, inshallah. But it does feel like there's going to be a lot of decisions to be made. There's going to be a lot of buildings that will go up and a lot of needs that will be finally addressed. And so you want to be ahead of that to just sort of say like, hey, there's a model of talking about um, uh, about these issues and, and the company's already there and, you know, we have our credentials and we've been m- telling this message. Has it started already or is it more that you're in waiting for for that that big boom? We are having discussions with as many stakeholders as possible involved uh, in the rebuilding process, in the development process. It's just that we have reached to the conclusion that we need to work top down. Hmm. And that's mean, uh, that means that we need to work with the government. Uh, we have to have the government um, beside us to support whatever activities and services we provide. And the reason why, because developers are more uh, profit-oriented thinkers. Right. Um, and when I was talking to one of them just a few days ago, and um, I'm talking to about a developer that uh, built huge complexes, thousands of units uh, at the time, and I was talking about how good sustainable buildings are and how we can help them uh, provide these units to people, affordable, sustainable housing uh, that will help reduce energy and water consumption. And he was like, but we don't want people to use less energy and water. We make money from people using energy and water because we provide now uh, electricity and, and water um, Uh, privately and uh, we want them to use more (laughs) that that means more money for us that's a remarkable statement yes and but i mean was there any self-awareness from him (laughs) about like just how how just deeply deeply flawed and short-sighted that concept (laughs) is or he's just like listen it's more money for them it's about uh, about having more money I mean they're investors and he was very clear about it he was like I'm an investor Uh, everything uh, for me is about how much I make and um, the other type of stakeholders are humanitarian organizations who are heavily involved in the rebuilding um, and somehow can also influence government they also uh, lack the expertise in, in this area so uh, they are committed 
to invest sustainably. They also have their own uh, struggles and difficulties uh, when it comes to availability of fund. What's this fund need to be uh, um, spent on? Uh, they have to provide indicators and specific numbers that they cannot reduce when it comes to number of units to rebuild, to rehabilitate and all of that. And that would leave them with like really small amount of budget for every single unit they build. And it will not meet sustainability requirements and standards. And it will end up just providing something basic as sheltering. Yeah. If the government is enforcing these um, requirements and standardization for rebuilding and, and development, everybody else will follow. You know, it's not out of the realm of possibility because before ISIS came, Kurdistan was selling itself as, you know, a region of the future. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the next Dubai as uh, exactly gets used by a lot of, you know, kind of hype, hype men for different areas. But it's definitely something that they were pitching here. The desire to be seen as modern, to be seen as in front and particularly the, the reality that in, in a lot of ways, Kurdistan continues to be ahead of other regions of Iraq and can sort of sort of take pride in that that position and model that way it makes me feel like there there could be uh, a receptive audience if they believe what they're saying about exactly. about their own future exactly now, um, you know, you never so know. Uh, thinking about the future has to be somehow promoted not to just look like other cities to function also as other cities because if you think of Dubai they are very highly sustainable and um, they invest a lot in, in green and sustainable building um, and they have also their own uh, standards that they follow. Um, they have built their own uh, rating system for uh, green and sustainable buildings. So they, they don't just have fancy looking buildings. They, um, They're fancy they, on the inside. They, yeah, they're also their, fancy on the inside. <laughs> in, their, in their skeletons, in their structure. Exactly. Um, you would mention environmental concerns kind of falling on deaf ears, uh, which is something we know, you know, all too well in the United States, uh, where getting people to, you know, believe in climate change is, is even somehow a struggle. How is climate change affecting Kurdistan and what, you know, uh, what are the kind of crises that are, that are coming up? You would be surprised, but uh, the region is classified as one of the top five places or regions in the world in terms of vulnerability to climate change. Really? Why? Yes. It's because of uh, environment degradation uh, due to neglection of, of government in the past three decades, rise of temperatures, um, drought, loss of uh, agricultural land to drought due to um, climate change. So many different, uh, so many different uh, issues that are created as a consequence of having climate change effect happening here but because we don't have much studies going on to address and highlight these issues so we are kind of uh, not aware of it hmm. but basically it's a man-made crisis kind of compounding exactly what's happening in the overall mm -hmm. structure of things so i mean kurdistan in terms of its climate it's I mean, right now it's been raining some, so it's very, very green. Which is unusual. Yeah. 
I've, I've heard this. I've heard, I've heard that uh, this is basically looks like Ireland compared to what Kurdistan usually is. Uh, but, um, you know, from the mountains to the, to the kind of the high plains, it's, it's in danger of desertification if, if the drought mm-hmm. continues and, and you have your, you know, kind of the onward trend. And also the reduction of uh, water stream coming from upstate. We have um, mismanagement of our resources, like natural resources, water. All of these are challenges that are contributing to the crisis. And um, I think the next ISIS would be uh, environment degradation and desertification if we don't really uh, pay uh, good attention to it. Yeah. Man, is that, I mean, does that analogy work? Like it's, I mean, I guess that's kind of what we have to do in the States too, is try to instill reasonable fear, you know, not panic, but just like appropriate fear about what's happening. Be responsible, basically. Just um, feeling responsible will help somehow that you work uh, in a way that helps somehow mitigate this uh, this big crisis uh, that is falling on everybody, not just us. If climate change is happening in the U.S., that doesn't mean it wouldn't happen here because we are not emitting as much greenhouse gas emissions. So it's going to happen everywhere. Like It's just not uh, one region-specific kind of crisis. It's just uh, happening all over the planet. So that's why everybody has to contribute towards uh, mitigating it. So you have all of these sets of kind of unusual perspectives, I guess, and unusual arguments, um, at least for the for the day uh, that you're making to government and others. But another thing that certainly this would stand out in the States as well is, you know, being a female entrepreneur who has started her own company in engineering to go and, and bang the drums and, and convince all of the men in power basically to make these changes. What is that like for you and, and how does that affect what you have to do or how you have to do it? Being a female entrepreneur? Yeah. It's giving me somehow um, more power. You would be surprised. People would listen. They wouldn't, because maybe f- from the first side they would think, oh, that's a female is going to tell us how we should do things. But then when we you're talking from knowledge, yeah. from expertise, this mask will just uh, disappear and they will just see someone who knows what is talking about yeah. and they would listen. So um, surprisingly, I haven't felt ever that I am judged or not heard because of being a female. I think maybe that is giving me more power and um, setting a good example for other females to just step forward when they believe in, and want to do something, they believe in something, they just step up. One of the things that's been interesting in, in my short time here is just also how segregated spaces are. I mean, you might be the first woman I've seen in maybe 24 hours because... Oh, wow. I know. I just, Where were you in the past not, 24 hours? Not to, not to get weird or anything, but I just, I haven't seen like, I don't know, we went out to go get street food at like Ispan Street and it was just all men. I went to, a, you know, we went to a Christian um, bar, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 
the teachers club in Ankawa or something mm -hmm. was also all men. And, you know, so th this is kind of, um, now I'm obviously seeking out male spaces, I guess, <laughs> here, but, um, but you as someone who had spent time in Auburn and knows the United States really well, um, but is Kurdish, like, I mean, what are the differences in what you have to navigate here in Kurdistan versus in, if you were doing this in the United States? Definitely, I guess. I think in terms of being a female, it wouldn't be that different. Yeah. Especially we're talking about the in the startup ecosystem. Yeah, um, I mean... Females know. are still struggling in the States. And, and a lot and of all these STEM stories about, issues. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, all yeah. these stories about um, how Silicon Valley is not uh, the perfect place and environment for women. Um, and entrepreneurs, uh, female entrepreneurs. And I think it wouldn't be that different. I feel more comfortable here because I feel this is my space. Hmm. These are my people. I might not look or act or work as any other typical female here, but still, this is where I feel I'm comfortable and I know people here and I know, I know very well the... the the way of thinking, uh, the traditions. I try not to really uh, disrupt yeah. <laughs> when it comes to uh, really certain traditions and, and um, beliefs. Uh, so you're not um, going to go to the male-only street food corridor? I would, I would do that. You would? Okay. I would do that. Yeah, and, and I, I like doing this with, uh, with friends and people here are very, um, very kind. And uh, they welcome people from different uh, backgrounds and, mm -hmm. and uh, personalities. I've done this a lot. Uh, I go to local uh, places. We sit. We eat kebab, and we look, you know, completely out of <laughs> out of place. Out of place. Yeah. Um, especially sometimes we go out uh, with our um, gym outfit. We feel like we feel like you know this time. To get some uh, some food and we go sit somewhere local and and um, we we kind of look out of place but we don't feel we're out of place so it's not it's not sort of an iron you know regulation around kind of who can go where it's no, just this is aren't. the this is the way it's just traditionally done yes. but if you have a mind to do it differently then uh, yeah, so a little story. The other day we went to uh, Shaklawa and we wanted some tea. We didn't have, we had, um, you know, the, the, tea, the tea bags and all the ingredients, but we didn't have hot water. We needed hot water. So we, we stopped by um, some local um, coffee place and it was packed with men. And um, Shakla was even more rural than uh, than Erbil city, and it was me, my sister, and, a, and another female friend. We went in. We were just, you know, very casual. We went in. We asked for some hot water, and the guy helped us. Um, the uh, the tea guy. And um, he also uh, offered to keep it for some time at uh, his stove for it to, you know, to brew and, and uh, get uh, more tasty. And men were sitting there and they were just talking to each other and it was just fine. So it wasn't like the record scratch moment where all heads turn immediately and like, oh my God, who at, are at these At the beginning, three? everybody, I'm sure everybody was thinking what just happened, but then, 
you know, this very first uncomfortable moment uh, passed through and then everything uh, was just normal. It is, I mean, it is interesting and I guess it's a part of just life, you know, since time immemorial in Kurdistan. We're here in Ramadan, which is a holiday with some some very clear sets of rules that uh, generally are supposed to be obeyed by the majority of the population. Of course, there's really large Christian population uh, here in Erbil. And, and it's just kind of interesting the way that they all kind of navigate each other's, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, preferences and interests. I don't know, it seems very, it seems kind of natural and casual in a way that I guess I hadn't quite expected. Yes. You know, the, the Christian owners of the hotel in Ankawa that we are staying in were like, oh yeah, you can definitely have a beer, but you know, have it indoors so that, you know, so that people aren't <laughs> Because aren't it's saying, Ramadan yeah, and because we don't it's want Ramadan. to offend anybody. Yeah, so it's like, it's not, it, you know, it, they're not like diving across the counter to grab the beer out of your hands or you know for fear that their neighbors are going to hate them or anything it just seemed like it's 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 a it's a very soft or like um uh smooth negotiation i guess that society does here mm -hmm. um because it's so mixed so um if if i'm hearing you correctly you're you're saying that that that's true with the relation of the sexes here it's just like you can be your own person and you can be the individual who you were meant to be mm -hmm. and people aren't trying to trying to put you in in some sort of category that you don't desire yes. so there is this um i call it acceptance acceptance to differences acceptance to others people live together for a very long time and uh, they despite the differences they have learned just to you know accommodate each other and uh, yeah this this acceptance is uh, something uh, something's precious tell me if you were thinking since you're the the, the master of long-term thinking for <laughs> for this region okay we're going to assume that peace is coming soon uh, like what will Erbil look like in 25 years what what is what could it be so definitely uh, advanced in terms of um, much technology is embedded in every single aspect i believe cities who are developing as fast as arab city would be uh, these big huge data generators hmm. This is the, uh, the image of future cities that everything is going to be tracked, recorded and processed. Public transportation and, and health uh, institutions and everything would be just um, highly advanced in technology and, and fast and, and productive. That's how I hope it would look like. But also at the same time, it would keep its own identity and culture and reflect people's beliefs and, and, and uh, differences and, and different uh, views. And um, so, um, so that even in having the... this beautiful balance between futuristic and, and um, human uh, touch of it. So. So even in the in the high tech sort of capital of Kurdistan of the future, where 
data is making things more efficient and sort mm -hmm. of uh, bringing order to the infrastructure, you still will have the, the chance and the space for people to sit and drink tea and yes. just kind of watch people go by. Exactly. Walk around and talk to random people. <laughs> the the embrace, classic. Embrace this, yeah. uh, this behavior. <laughs> the classic sports of, uh, of Kurdish life. Well, that's a good note to leave it on as we can just sort of sit here and look out the window and drink tea <laughs> and imagine, imagine the future. Um, I just think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful that you were doing this and kind of have bridged um, both from the States back to here and, and that you are here, you know, that, yeah. that this, is, this is where you're making your stand um, is, uh, is pretty remarkable. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me here. I loved it. The trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Emily Marinoff was our producer on this episode. Taffy Mulkanyadze was our consulting producer. Alexa Van Sickle is our online editor. Music by Day in the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Jengis Yar was the producer on this and all of our Iraq episodes. Next on this feed, Monday, November 2nd, we are kicking off our Cuba series with a huge talent, someone I have admired for years, the poet and singer and MC Telmari. We talk rum and rumba, hip-hop and Havana. We will meet you there.